Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks. I hope you all had a great holiday, and um, we are just raring to go and getting uh, getting ready for the new year here. I um, uh, before I introduce our guest today, I always like to uh, just tell everybody a little bit about Alzheimer's Speaks because we're always getting new listeners. So. To let you know who we are and what we do, here goes. Um, bottom line, we are an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We truly believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, that we're going to be able to remove a lot of the stigmas attached to dementia and help those who are currently living with it live a better, more fulfilled life, as well as those who are caring for them. At our core, we also believe that collaboration is the only way that we're going to win this battle. And I know it's I know it's working thanks to each and every one of you. You see, your likes, your clicks, and your shares um, have um, spread the voice of Alzheimer's Speaks. And our voice isn't just us. It's everyone. We want to hear from those living with the disease. We want to hear for, from loved ones and friends who are caring for people who have um, dementia. We want to hear from professionals. Um, we've had researchers on the show. We've had um, singers and songwriters and movie directors and authors. Everybody has a voice. And um, this is where we would love for you to share it. So if you're listening right now, we'd appreciate it if you would just like and share the show with others. That's how the word is passed. Um, And again, by doing that, um, you are helping all of us because we all have people in our own spheres that are dealing with this disease um, that may not have come out of the closet yet, might not feel comfortable, and we need to make sure that they feel comfortable and supported. So thank you so much. I want to also give a shout out to uh, the American Senior Magazine. If you're not familiar with them, you might want to check them out. You can get uh, an actual deal on their subscription if you go to alzheimerspeaks.com. But what I love about their magazine is it's nice big print, great articles. Um, They've got some games and things in there to play, but it's just a really nice uh, resource and and well-put-together, well-thought-out magazine. Also have to give a shout out to the Alzheimer's Research um, and Prevention Foundation uh, out in Arizona. I just love them to death. They uh, do a lot of holistic things. So if you're into meditation and diet, um, definitely go ahead and look them up. Also, the Call Alert Center, which is a wonderful thing to have in place. 
if you have a loved one with dementia and in case they would wander, we never know when that might happen, um, you will be set and ready for for the circumstances. Um, my co-host today is Lori Shear, and I just absolutely adore her. Finally got to meet her when we went on our dementia-friendly cruise. So welcome, Lori. How are you today? Well, thank you, Lori. I am doing well um, and so excited to be here with you and, and Dr. Potts, both of who I just totally admire. Wonderful. Do you want to give people just a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. Uh, at the age of 55, I was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and FTD, which is frontotemporal dementia. Um, I, over the past few years, I've gotten very involved in a lot of advocacy work and mentoring people who are newly diagnosed and trying to help them through the beginning of this diagnosis, which is the first year is so hard. And so I try and help people that were just diagnosed to make it through. Wonderful. And like you mentioned, our guest today is Dr. Daniel Potts. Um, He is a neurologist, an author, an educator, and an advocate for those living with dementia, along with their care partners. He's the one amazing uh, gentleman, and we're just thrilled to have him back on the show. He has written and or edited several books, included A Pocket Guide for Alzheimer's Caregivers, Finding Joy in Alzheimer's, Seasons of Caring, and Treasure for Alzheimer's, um, amongst many others. He practices um, neurology at the VA Medical Center in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and he is on the faculty of the Alabama Capstone College of Medicine and the uh, UAB School of Medicine as well. And um, and then also at the University of South Alabama uh, College of Medicine. So welcome, Dr. Potts. How are you today? Lori, I'm great, and it's a pleasure to be back on your show. And hello, Lori, as well. So we're, we're just very happy to be back with you. Well, good, good, good. I, um, I, you know, I, I just love your work, and I can't say enough good things, uh, you know, about your, your books and the work that you do, and um, how highly respected you are, um, in the arena of dementia. Uh, your name is, um, is a way up top there, and uh, it's just lovely to have you back on the show. So again, thank you so much for, for being with us. Um, Before we kind of go into our line of questioning, I always ask um, every guest this question, and for some of those that may not know you, can you just tell people, you know, have you been personally touched by dementia in your circle, you know, in your family or friends? Yes, uh, Lori, it's it's an honor and a privilege to be able to to talk about this. Um, First of all, I remember every time I hear you talk about what Alzheimer's Speaks is all about, um, I'm, I'm, I'm moved and I'm impressed and uh, I'm just convinced that you are leading the path for us uh, along this advocacy way uh, by all that you do. And so thank you for what you do, and, and it's a privilege to be back. Um, but, yes, I've been, touched, uh, I've been touched personally by Alzheimer's disease and dementia. My father, Lester, 
um, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease at about the age of 70 back in about the year 2001, and uh, he passed away in 2007. Um, Dad was um, a wonderful guy, and I'll talk more about that uh, during the during the, the show here. But uh, his story of uh, tr- really triumph—I I call it triumph—over the disease because of, because of the power of his spirit and his art and his creativity has l- really been my motivation to do what I do now. Um, but yes, we we've seen it. In, in all sorts of ways, you know, Lori, uh, and, uh, and and it's just an honor to be out there trying to do what little I can do to try to to uh, to change the stigma and and, uh, and provide some compassion. Well, great. Now, with with your dad, um, you know, the the book that you wrote, the Pocket Guide for um, Alzheimer's Caregivers, has some information in there about his artistic abilities and kind of how they blossomed um, once he was diagnosed. Can you explain that to people? I mean, you know, did he did he piddle with art, or you know, or was he really big into it, or did it just kind of happen after the fact? Well, that's that's uh, so interesting because Lori, Dad, we we knew of no artistic ability that he had. Uh, literally, Dad was a very utilitarian uh, child of the, of the Depression era, uh, um, a, a wonderful worker. He used his hands a lot for work. He loved woodworking, but we didn't know he had any uh, ability for visual art, uh, watercolor, or anything else. So it was a complete surprise when Dad attended an adult daycare called Caring Days and was exposed to various therapies, expressive arts therapies there, one of them being art, and that Dad brought home his first watercolor to Mother. Mother saw it, a little hummingbird. And she said, Lester, honey, who, who did that for you? It's so pretty. I did it myself, he said. Oh, she said, did you trace it? <laughs> Mother had never seen, nor had any of us, seen any ability coming out. And so, Lori, it was a complete surprise. And, and we can talk about some reasons that I think in his case, it came out, but uh, just floored us to see this. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, we're hearing more about the, the arts and and how um, how it just connects with people with dementia. Why, why do you think that is? Well, and, and, and now, now there's been a lot of work that's been done and some study about this. I think one of the reasons is that the expressive arts, art of any type, um, enable us to bypass some of the roadblocks that are laid by dementia in terms of our ability to use language, uh, verbiage to express our story and to express our emotions. As you know, dementia can tend to rob us of that ability. So uh, we have to find another outlet. We have a story. You know, Maya Angelou said there's 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 nothing worse. I'm paraphrasing than, than an untold story inside you. You got to get your story out. And the expressive arts help us to do that, but they also help us to deal with issues that we're having a hard time dealing with uh, in, in, in this disease. Uh, we have to work through things, and it becomes much more difficult to work through them. Well, the arts provide a venue to do that, and that's just one of the many ways that it works, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Lori, do you have any, any comment on that? No, I think it. I think it's awesome that your dad found a new venue to reach towards, because it's difficult when we get the when we have dementia, 
um, we frequently lose some of the abilities that we had, whether it's art or music. But then frequently we also reach out and find some new avenues that do help us communicate. And I think it, it's just really fascinating that your dad became so good at art. Lori, it, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. And, and I just want to, my hat goes off to you for, for what you are doing and for the, for the courage you have in advocacy teaching us about what it's like and, and demonstrating, uh, you know, ways that you can move beyond. And, and uh, you know, I will say this. Had it not been for people around Dad, his care partners, that were very compassionate and very enabling and and really showing him great deference and support and encouragement, he would have probably not been able to find that venue. You know, he, he was provided and surrounded with the kind of support and care that we certainly hope everyone can get to, and unfortunately everyone can't. But it enabled his voice to come out, you know, and it's so powerful. Yeah, it really is, and it's just such a, I mean, I would think those gifts of that, the the work of art that he has done, are just so precious to family and friends. It's like his life story came out in art at a time when he couldn't share it anymore. We have early childhood memories, some things that, that even the family didn't know about, that Dad painted about in these in these paintings, and we, we're left with that. It's like looking at a at a picture of his early life. Oh wow, that's that's very interesting. Um, you know, given your your situation and your journey with your dad, how how has that um, helped you or influenced you in your medical practice and your philosophy of care uh, for those with dementia? Well, it. it- it's it's sort of it's it's been so powerful for me that it's almost sort of hard to encapsulate. I think what the main thing that that it did for me was to show me that a human being is still a human being with great dignity and capability and uh, expressive ability, and uh, that the disease can't take that away. It's it's imparted. The personhood is is something can't be stolen. And, and so I, as a care partner and, and, and as, a, as a physician, as a, as a health care provider, I need to be able to look for that. I need to always keep my eyes open for that personhood and its expression. And I need to be uh, very aware that this is a human being, that, that nothing can change that. And so compassion and empathy and uh, an enabling attitude for that is, is huge. And so now I look at people who have conditions like this, and I see my dad, and I see uh, the the incredible power of the person that still resides in that human being. So I, you know, I always need to to be deferent to that. Well, that's uh, really interesting. Have you have you noticed um, the influence your dad's had on you? Have you seen that rub off on some of your colleagues at all? Well, you know, yes, I have, and and, I've, and the, to be quite honest, and I've, I've learned a lot from those colleagues as well. I, th- I think, you know, I've been fortunate to have been taught by many, many wonderful physicians and have, have worked with many wonderful ones, and so I've learned from them. But, yes, I, I have seen it rub off, and I, and I will say that, that one of the greatest callings that I think I have now is to 
um, educate uh, my own colleagues in the medical profession about that very thing. You know, I think that one of the ways that, and I'm, I'm speaking for myself too, one of the ways that we perhaps are not doing a good job of helping people live with dementia, live well with dementia, is that we don't put ourselves in, in their shoes and we, we don't uh, have the, the type of compassion that we should, for instance, in office visits. Um, uh, many people with dementia report to me that, um, that there was a lack of compassion demonstrated in the clinic when, say, they were given the diagnosis. There, there were not enough resources talked about, um, that they were not treated, you know, they were not communicated with as a person. The communication was with the care partner, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we can do a better job of, uh, of trying to treat people with dignity as we interact with them in the clinic or in the hospital. I would agree. Lori, well, I know you've got some thoughts along that line. Um, would you like to share? I do, and um, Dr. Potts, I had the privilege of seeing you firsthand with your compassion and your your dignity that you give those of us uh, living with dementia, and I, kudos to you because you're very rare to find. Cause it's true. Most of us that get the diagnosis are told something to the effect of go home, get your affairs in order, and see an elder care attorney and oh, by the way, come back in six months and give me another hundred bucks. Um, And that's pretty much the way the diagnosis goes. But I appreciate people like you and Lori um, who are so much willing to reach out and include people with dementia um, in in your research, in your study, in, in everything that you do so that our voices can be heard and we can say, hey, you don't need to treat us like that. Uh, so I so much appreciate both of you and what you do do with that and for your compassion. Um, it's hard. It's difficult when you're sitting in a doctor's office and all they tell you is you're dying and that's it. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's so many resources out there like Dementia Action Alliance and Dementia Mentors and so many more avenues that could help people but you're not given that resource. Very true. And I I think that that's something that is changing, um, thankfully. I I think uh, the medical field is is looking at this a little bit more seriously in terms of of how people are dealt with um, and how this diagnosis is, is given. Um, to people, would you do you feel that you're seeing some changes, um, Danny, in this in the in the field as a whole, in terms of a little bit more I, compassion? I do, uh, I do, Lori, and and I'll, I'll harken back there as Lori mentioned the Dementia Action Alliance, and of course we're, we're all familiar with that organization, and I and I I was fortunate to be able to attend the, the conference this past year, and as I've told people one of the most powerful parts was the panel discussion of people living with dementia who were asked what was it like to get the diagnosis and to a person they all talked about how what a terrible experience it was well it was very embarrassing for me as a healthcare provider to even hear that and to think about it and so mm-hmm. one of the things that I've tried to do since then is to is to get the word out about how how we need to do a better job and 
Dr. Neelam Agarwal and I, uh, she's a colleague from Rush University, we're going to actually do a presentation at the American Academy of Neurology meeting in Los Angeles in April where we address this issue with neurologists. And we're going to have a panel there, very similar to the one that was at the DAA conference. And we hope that, you know, we can, can add some, some credence and some edu- provide some education about this. And, and I'll tell you, Lori, it wasn't, it wouldn't be happening if it weren't for people like you who courageously told your stories and tell your stories about your interface with the, with the healthcare, you know, the healthcare profession. It's just so important. I agree. <clears throat> I think that's really exciting um, to hear that that's that that's going to be happening. Lori, I think you had a comment. Yeah, I was just curious. How long was your dad able to do his art? You said he passed in 2007. How right. long did he maintain that ability to to express himself that way? And also, when he was drawing, drawing, were you able to talk to him about the things that he was drawing, and was he able to explain them? So, good questions. He, he was able to, to, to um, express himself through art for about... I'm going to say maybe four years. Uh, he died in 2007, and the last things that he probably drew were some around, sometime around 2006. And those were, 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 were very, they were things like circles within a circle, you know. But, but, but even though they, we look at that and we think, wow, that was, that's kind of sort of simplistic. No, for him, I think it, it was very important because it provided calm, it provided a calm activity. You know, for him, so so four years he was able to do that, even into late stage. Um, the the other thing is that looking back, I wish we had been able to talk to him more about what he was painting. But he was very he was very severely affected with aphasia, so he could he couldn't get his words out even from moderate on on through. So some of the things he painted, we asked him about them. We knew what they were because we we could figure it out, and all he could do is point and and cry or smile or something like that. In other words, he was expressing emotion. He would put his hand on, even on some of the some of the images as we were talking, and he gave us some, some emotional expression that we knew that he knew what they were, you see. But, but no, we couldn't talk to him a whole lot about, about what he was painting. Okay. Interesting. Um, that brings me to another thing that I'd really like to discuss with you, Hmm. Well, we got a little playback there. That was kind of strange. Um, I, I'm interested, Danny, in having you talk about bringing art to life program and um, where that is at and how that has happened. Yes, uh, I'd love to, Lori. So after Dad passed away, actually, kind of before we we, we began to to say, you know what, we've got to pay this forward. I mean, people have been so good to Dad and, and give him these opportunities. We want to do this kind of thing for others, and so we started a foundation called Cognitive Dynamics. And the mission of that foundation is to bring expressive arts to people living with dementia and their care partners, and uh, also to enable storytelling, so to facilitate storytelling. And so, um, back in 2011, we partnered with the University of Alabama Honors College 
to start uh, a class called Art to Life, which is really the Bringing Art to Life program, uh, the way it started. And so we, we have 15 students a semester, and we pair them with people living with dementia, about three students to a person. And uh, we, over the course of that semester, we first of all teach the students about dementia, uh, about art therapy and other expressive therapies. We go through um, simulated dementia experiences like the virtual dementia tour, and we'll be starting up with some uh, some uh, uh, technologically advanced um, simulations here in the future. And we, we um, prepare the students about how to interact with people. Um, and so, and then they meet their participants, and over the next eight to nine weeks, they have art therapy together every week, and they, they form relationships, and they become friends by the end of the semester. And then we create a book about the person, uh, their life. It's a legacy book, a leather-bound legacy book from lifebio.com. And then we have a big celebration at the end of the semester and give them their books and all their art. And it's just a lovely experience. The kids write every week, Lori, about their experiences. And these writings have taught me so much, have taught us so much about the, the, the impact of the program on these young people and, and more so the impact of the relationship, being in a relationship with a person living with dementia, it changes these kids forever. And it makes many of them want to then go into fields where they will be working with these, with, with folks and where they'll be able to make a difference in, in advocacy. So it's something that I'm real excited about. And I'll tell you, Lester would be mighty proud of uh, that his art and his story uh, were the inspiration for this. I just know it. So I love doing it. Oh, neat. Now, when you talk students, what age are they? So we've, we've, we've done the program with both college students from 18 to 22, but we recently launched a pilot of this program in Chicago with high school students at Northside College Prep School, uh, and we partnered with, uh, with the uh, Chicago Methodist Senior Services there in Chicago. And so we, we, we used high school students as well. And so it works with, with all of those ages, and really it would work with, with any age, I think, provided they're mature enough to, to be able to interact, you know, and, 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 and do, the, do the writing and coursework. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. Is there, um, is there a cost to families who are involved in this, or is it through grant funding? or? Right. No, there's not. There's not a cost. It's all provided. Um, and uh, we've had grants, for instance, for the Alzheimer's Foundation of America uh, has awarded us a couple of grants for the program, and we've had donors. And um, we're we're always uh, we're always looking for for funding for the program. But um, yeah, it's and it's portable. So in other words, we can we, we we don't have to have it in a setting of an academic institution. We could um, we could uh, have small groups or pods, I would call it of of individuals that go around and do expressive therapies, you know, after being trained about how to do it. Because the important thing is the relationships. The important mm-hmm. thing is, is getting to know the, the, the person. And the art is a tool. It's an, it's, it's an important tool, but, it, but it's, it's a relational-based um, program. Okay. Uh, Lori, do you have any questions regarding the program, uh, Bringing Art to Life? I just think that sounds really exciting. Um, but what are the kids' reactions to it? Are they um, wanting more of it? Are they leaving? How are they? Are they leaving feeling fulfilled? What, what's their reaction? 
Lori, almost to the person, and we've we've been doing this course since 2011. So we've had, uh, you know, we've had maybe 150 or, or so uh, kids here in Tuscaloosa, plus the 20 in, in Chicago. Almost to a person, they're transformed. It it impacts them. In fact, we've 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 published some research on uh, on some 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 early data that we have, and we know that the program has an impact on on measures of empathy. So we know the kids are more empathetic um, compared to, to other coursework that, that we've, we've used as controls. We know that it changes ageist attitudes. It improves attitudes toward, age, toward aging and the stigma associated with aging. We know that, we know that it gets the kids in touch with themselves uh, to a greater degree. And it also decreases stigma about dementia. We know those things, and to read the writings, if you look at the early writings of the kids the first few weeks and go through to the end, you can see that it has deeply impacted them. Uh, it has made them more compassionate. Uh, it, it has made them understand that the personhood lives on uh, and that they'll, they'll never walk by another person and, and, and not, not speak and not interact and, and prejudge that person. They just won't. So it's been very powerful for us to read that and to, to learn that. Wow. Now, is this is this just in Alabama, or is it uh, throughout the nation? No, it would be able we would be able to do the program anywhere. Um, we we've got a manual that we've created about how to do it, and we've got the um, the opportunity to to do online training and that sort of thing. So really, it could be done anywhere. Um, uh, with a little a little funding and, and and that sort of thing, but yeah, we want it we want it to get out. We feel like it's a it's a good program, and there are other programs that are like this out there, you know. But this is the one we can we can help with, and we can we've got some expertise in. Angel Duncan, who is our executive arts director at our foundation, who's an art therapist, has had just a, a leading role in creating this program, and she does a lot of the training for the arts based interventions. She's in Florida, but we work very closely with her. Okay, wonderful. Well, that is absolutely fantastic. Uh, that would be something I think that would be really interesting for the new um, Dementia Resource Directory Care to Plan that is in beta testing right now, too, to help connect people to various resources and, and things. I have that on my website, alzheimerspeaks.com, if people go to the, the resource directory, but that would be um, a great program, along with you know everything else that you're you're involved with too. Uh, I think that that is yeah. wonderful. I, I don't think there's a better way to shift mindset um, other than to go through kind of the heart um, and to really get people connected and and see, like you said, the true personhood um, that's there and exists, and uh, that engagement at that level is is so powerful so powerful so thank you for bringing that uh bringing that to life that's very cool absolutely and I think not only changing the mindset but also working with the young people before they have a mindset while they're still Mm -hmm. open to change is so uh, that's just so powerful yeah the intergenerational component yes is so powerful and the other thing is laura you mentioned mindfulness and wellness and holistic stuff we teach we teach the kids that too. So we have a mindfulness part of the course, and and one of the things I didn't anticipate it happening is that they become more in touch with themselves through the through this process. So they not only develop relationally with another, but even with their own with their own identity. 
So it, it's my mindfulness has a has a wonderful role to play. I think. Yeah, well, it, I think it really gets them in touch with that. <clears throat> excuse my voice. The power of one and the effect that they have on others, and and I think it just automatically makes you look inside at how am I coming off, how am I being perceived, because you're looking at someone else in a whole different light um, than maybe you would have before. Um, so I, I think that that's, that is great. Now, you also um, do a lot with faith and spirituality, and the book um, Seasons of of caring is just absolutely fantastic. Um, can you talk about that um, as it pertains to dementia care as well? Absolutely. The longer that I've that I've walked down this road, uh, the more that I realize uh, how important the spiritual aspects uh, are uh, to both the, the care partners and to the individuals living with dementia. I think from talking to them and interacting with them, and Laura can can add more to that. I'm sure, but. I, I, I've been fortunate to be able to work with uh, uh, Faith United Against Alzheimer's, Clergy Against Alzheimer's uh, sections of Us Against Alzheimer's, and have met people like uh, Linda, Linda Everman and Don Windorf and Dr. Richard Morgan and others who have been so influential uh, in my own journey. But I, I really think, from my experience, the care partners that have 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 been the most resilient and have had the most to, to, to offer on this marathon uh, are the ones that have been able to, to make the connection, spiritually speaking, and, and to, to, to put on a, I say, put on your gratitude glasses. In other words, uh, look, at, look at the world and the situation a little bit differently if possible. I never will forget, and this has been so powerful to me, uh, Dr. Jim Houston, who is the uh, former regent or former uh, founder of Regent College in Vancouver, and a, a wonderful theologian, and, and so he lived with C.S. Lewis for a while at Oxford. But his wife lived with uh, with Alzheimer's disease, and he said, he said, you know, I, I've I've learned to to look at this as as something that is going to bring out my best as I try to provide care for her, and it and it's it's a reciprocal thing. We have to. We, we have to receive as we are giving or we'll burn out. He said so many wonderful things in an interview I did with him that have continued to influence me. But the biggest things are to have the eyes to see and be grateful that you are able to provide compassionate care and, and, and therefore receive it back for yourself and, and just value this human being. Uh, oh, I could go on and on about it, but it, it, it really has, has invigorated my um, uh calling and, and my teaching and, and everything, and I share this openly with uh, with people. I think it's so important. The Seasons of Caring is, is just a wonderful volume, a multi-faith volume of, of uh, uh, meditations that's, that's been written by members of many, many different faiths, and uh, it's very inclusive, and, and each of them has something to say that's very helpful. Wonderful. Uh, Lori, what are your thoughts regarding um, faith and spirituality and, and dementia? I, I totally agree with what you've been saying. And, in fact, in my dementia community, of so many friends around the world that have dementia, and in my dementia mentoring, um, you can almost tell the people that are going to go down quickly based on their entire attitude. Um, those that... Uh, have no faith 
and are just miserable, ungrateful, and woe is me, poor me, are the ones that are going to go down quickly. Um, The ones that continue to find gratitude in every day, that continue to try and make a difference in the world, that continue to find things they can be productive on, and continue to say, God, I know you're walking with me, are the ones that are going to last longer. Their cognitive abilities are going to hang on longer for the most part. Um, I, I think attitude as a whole, both your, your mental attitude and your spiritual attitude, has such an impact on your entire life. Yeah, I I definitely would agree with you there. I know um, that, you know, dementia can be a a tough road to hoe. I mean, I don't think anyone will argue that, but there are gifts wrapped in everything. And when you don't feel alone, you know, when you feel that, you know, there's a, there's a power larger than you at hand. I, I, for me, I know I find a lot of comfort in that. And I know that people believe in a lot of, Um, different powers and some people don't believe in any and uh, you know I'm not going to get into an argument over that I think everybody has to do what they're comfortable with but I I just you know I just find it really um, really really helpful um, to to fill my soul and to sometimes sometimes just empty it too (laughs) and just let everything out in a a safe space um, where I know I'm not going to be judged um, to release those feelings so that I don't go, you know, just boo-coo crazy. And, um, and and to know that there is a lesson, there is something to learn. You know, that was probably one of the biggest um, things that, I, that my faith has given me is, is always that there's a reason. I might not always like the reason, but there's always a lesson that is very helpful, not just for dementia, but for everything I do in life that can be applied um, to that, and when I when I look at those stressful times, and I and I go to God as um, kind of my my balancing act, or, and uh, to bring me some comfort in terms of what's my lesson um, that I, that I feel like I'm really participating in life, and I'm learning and learning to share with others what I've learned because I think there's so much power in that as well, um, and that's one of the reasons I, I think I I just love my job so much it's just such an honor to talk with so many people coming from so many different um lights within the world um to make a change to be open to have to be able to be authentic i think we've lost that ability in society at large for people to be authentic and i think this disease in some really strange way is helping pull people back to say you know what none of us are perfect it's okay to talk about who we are in totality, um, the good, the bad, the ugly, because we all have those days. We all have those moments. And I think it's something that's needed. Um, Danny, what do, you, what do you think, you know, regarding, you know, the faith and spirituality? I mean, I know, I know kind of your thoughts, you'd shared that, but have you, have you seen any research um, to kind of hold that up to um, maybe give people strength to to go on. Has that been researched? 
Yes, it, it has to a certain extent, and, and I, I can't quote, quote name and study for you very much, but, but I, I, can, I can tell you that I'm aware of data that shows that there are more um, uplift for, for caregivers, for instance, there are more uplifts. Uh, uh, caregivers perceive uh, uplifts uh, if, if they remain spiritually connected, if they're members of a faith-based, faith-based community, if they pray or meditate, that sort of thing. Um, I, I, I can't quote studies right now on people living with dementia, but um, I, I know the data, the data is out there and it's growing. Um, mm-hmm. I, you, you couldn't see me down here, but I literally was, was I, I felt like I needed to jump up and down and, and, and in, in affirmation of everything both of you were saying because you, you uttered such truth about this. The, the authenticity piece, um, you know, we, we talk about stigma all the time. Well, a, a lot of it is, is, is a lot of us are afraid to, we're afraid to be authentic ourselves. You know, we, we have to be able to look at ourselves and see our own um, conditions, uh, mm-hmm. see, see our own problems and see our own limitations if we're going to be able to deal with the limitations of others. And so I, we try to, the students and I talk all the time about, listen, you've got to see yourself as somebody who also has needs. And you've got to be able to present those needs in a trusting environment so that you can then see this person who's living with dementia uh, with clear eyes. And, and we, we need to be able to talk about this openly. And, um, and authenticity is a big part of that piece, and so I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, the healthcare worker, the healthcare providers don't necessarily embrace that, that, that authenticity a lot, and I think that society you know, puts healthcare providers on pedestals and expects them to be perfect. Well, guess what? We're not. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the first one to tell you. I got many, many faults. We could talk for the, the several more shows about those. Let's not, but we could. But I'm telling you, I believe what you said. Authenticity is important. Well, that's <clears throat> yeah. I, I think that that's uh, just kind of a big bugaboo, like I said, in in society, and that's one of the things that. You know, I've noticed, and I think well, I think all of us have noticed that the relationships become so deep so quickly because people people are talking about real life, you know, and things. Mm-hmm. That a lot of times, they don't even share with their own family or friends because they don't feel safe. And yet, when they're with like mind people, um, you know, that comes about, and and that's a pretty pretty cool thing. Uh, to be able to happen. Can you talk to us a little bit about the culture of compassion? Yeah. So th- this this term came up, and, and I'm not the one to coin this term, I, I, but I, but I, the, the, the term came up for me when I was, was interviewing a man that I just mentioned, Dr. Jim Houston in Vancouver in 2012. His wife, Rita, was living with, with dementia. He himself, a brilliant theologian who is now coming to terms with this dementia uh, spiritually. And, and he talked about um, uh, how if society believes uh, falsely that we can continue to take care of everybody that needs to be taken care of in facilities and pay for that kind of care and such, uh, we're, we're living a pipe dream, but we have to begin to uh, embrace a culture of compassion. And by that, I think he meant uh, efforts that, that you've talked about already, efforts to end uh, stigma, efforts to uh, develop a dementia-friendly culture, 
uh, elements to educate uh, health care providers about how to appropriately interact with people, um, uh, enable those uh, with dementia to live well after the diagnosis, um, uh, lobby uh, lawmakers uh, about um, um, you know increasing funding for, for not only cure but also care. All of these things go into what I talk about as being a culture of compassion, but the heart of it for me goes back to each of us as individuals and how we do the things that we've been talking about in this show. How do I look at myself and bring my best self to the task of, of trying to help someone live well with dementia? How do I look at this human being as a person that has value and dignity despite this diagnosis, and how do I get that word out? Because I think a lot of healthcare providers, the underlying problem already is that they don't look at this person as being a person who's still there. They mm-hmm. don't. They, they, the, the, with the loss of, of, of some cognitive capacity, cognitive capacity, a lot of people look at that person as being less than now. Well, if we do that, then we're not going to be advocates. We're not going to be champions. We're not going to be saying, no, we have to increase funding. So we've got to change that, and we need to start with young people. We need to get them in relationships with people living with dementia, because if we do, it'll change them. And the deeper the relationship, the more they'll be changed. And then they'll come out and say, of course we have to advocate. Of course we have to increase funding. These are people with much to offer. And so I think it begins right here at home. Danny Potts has to say to himself, yep, you know what, I'm seeing that person with different eyes now. And uh, Lester, thank you for giving me that. Buddy, thank you, Pop, for giving me that. That's what I want to say to people. It has to start at home. Then it'll be organizational, and then it'll change our culture. You know, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think one of the other things when we talk about home, a lot of times people think, uh, and I've seen this over and over, and I'm sure both of you have too, where the the care partners know the person has dementia, but they don't share information with the rest of the family, and that includes the kids. And and I know this is happening because when I go out to schools and talk, the kids will say, you know, everything has changed. I mean, because it might be grandma and grandpa's moved in with them or just that mom and dad have to spend more time over there, so priorities within the household have changed. But kids aren't aren't allowed many times to be part of that change. We're, we feel like we're protecting them from this disease, and they they want to be part. They want to help, but they don't know how if we don't have conversations with them and if we don't allow them to come to the table. So I think when we're talking families, we have to talk all ages. You know, my um, I'll use my daughter as an example. She, you know, she'll be 28, and she only knew her her grandma with dementia. You know, my mom had dementia her whole life, but they were like two peas in a pod. Um, and, you know, my my nieces and nephews, not so much did they know their grandma like that. So, they're, you know, they had a, a very different interaction with her. And, um, you know, so I think, it's, um, I think it's really important because the kids need support too because, the structure a lot of times of the family has changed or the priorities have changed and they need to understand why that's taken place as well. Right. And, and right. what they and can do back. That, 
Yes, and at the heart of that is destigmatization. I mean, here's the elephant in the room. We're not addressing it. We have to destigmatize, mm-hmm. teach the kids, get them on board. I often say if the adults could get out of the room and leave the person living with dementia and the kids in the room together, they'd all be friends and having a, and, and having a, having a great time, you know, without us. Yep. I, th- I think somehow we 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 enter that enter in that room with our prejudgments and our, our need to control the situation. And we actually do harm in, in many ways. Oh, that's a great example. When my when my daughter was in the, I want to say it was in kindergarten. I remember going in for a uh, one of her reviews, you know, conferences, and the teacher's like, "Oh, you know, she's just so good with the other kids, you know." And there was a couple of them that were disabled, and one was in a wheelchair, and one had a, a different type of disability. And she's like, "Oh, your daughter's so special." And I just looked at her and I just laughed and I said, "What are you talking about?" I said, she doesn't see what you see. <laughs> she just doesn't see it. She just sees them right. like everybody else because we haven't taught her to do that. And and that had never occurred to that teacher. You right. know, that that we were putting people in boxes and we were the ones that were segregating people because of the way we acted. And I think that that's a huge lesson for us to learn as a society and and as family. Um, right. Lori, Lori, you've probably experienced some of what we're talking about. What are your thoughts? Well, I wanted to make a comment on the dementia of compassion. Um, you talked about looking inside yourself. Uh, my husband and I have, have talked about this. And as a care partner, um, there are times when he has to also look inside of me and help me to bring out the best in me because there's times that I'm too confused, I'm too tired, whatever, and I'm not able to do that. So that then becomes his job to not only look inside himself but to look inside me and help me to pull myself back out again. Um, And hopefully that's going to be done with as much passion and compassion as as possible um, but I, that's also an important aspect, I think, is as a care partner looking inside that person, seeing what's left. What what mm-hmm. is there? What yeah. can what can they accomplish? What can you pull out of them? What a what a great great insight, um, because that yes. that is what a true compassionate um, care partner is. That they're not just thinking about themselves, but they're helping communicate when the communication um, needs a little assistance. And in doing that in a respectful way, so that you're still involved in the process, and um, and I think sometimes we don't always give care partners the credit for that, um, but that makes a, a huge difference in the relevancy of of our relationships and how other people even view those relationships. You know, um, I know when I see a, a care partner assist their loved one in that in that manner, it just to me it's it's truly leading by example. And I see it yeah. in the memory cafes so often where people will like, oh, I, I didn't think of doing it that way. You know, and it might not be said, but there's yeah. usually a comment afterwards of, wow, that was, that was powerful to see and, and to watch and, and to know that they can, they can too do it that way. Yes. I think that also goes along with the, the common misconception uh, when 
people meet a group of us with dementia, and they go, oh, you can talk, you can walk. Um, there is a lot left inside of us, and hopefully we within ourselves and our care partners are going to help us to continue to pull out the strength and the abilities that we do have. Mm-hmm. Lori, that 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 is so powerful, and you know one of the things we talk about with our with our students is finding the pillars of personhood. That's what I call them the the, the elements of the human being that that are persistent and there, and these abilities and these these uh, personal elements, characteristics that are there, and we can build on those, focusing on those. And uh, I love the scene in, in Glenn Campbell, "I'll Be Me," when he's when he's in. Uh, having his many mental status examination, and he can't answer any of the questions. But it, after one of the things he can't answer, he says, "But I can play a guitar." Well, sure you can. Play it, man. You know, sure you can play a guitar. He, he himself came out and said, "I can do this," because the focus was on the negative, and I thought that that really spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of like with Pat Summit's son. I had heard that. You know, he was in there when his mom was getting the test done, and he said, well, of course she doesn't know math. She's hated math. She's never been good at math. <laughs> Ask my mom about leadership. Ask my mom about basketball. Ask my mom about stuff she cares about. She can still answer all yep. those questions, you know, and participate in the conversation. Yep. Um, so, I have yeah, to so- tell you my bias. Mm-hmm. My bias, Lori, is against. I mean, I know you, we we have to assess our patients, and we certainly do that. But 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 I'm I, I have a I'm, I'm biased against a lot of the testing. You know, one of the things I've gained because I've got gray hair and I've been doing this a while is is a, is a, is a, the clinical acumen to be able to assess somebody by talking to them and interact with them and talking to their families and that sort of thing, without putting them through a lot of uh, a lot of things that again add to the stigma in the office visit. So that's just part of my bias with it. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> But anyway, maybe that's not good clinical care. I don't know. But anyway, I I, I want them to have a good experience in the clinic. So. No, I, I agree with you. I remember when my mom went through the testing, and it was so degrading to her. She was so mm-hmm. depressed and so low for for a long time. It took, it took a long time to pull her kind of out of that hole because she felt really beat up and exhausted and she had two half days of testing and it was hard to even get her to go back for the second day and it was hard for us to even want to bring her back but we felt like it was that's what we were told we needed to do because it was just so so difficult on her Lori what are are your thoughts on testing that's kind of an interesting concept I don't know that I'd call it interesting I'd call it grueling (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I remember I had one day that I was six hours in testing and and with like a 10-minute break for lunch, uh, which was a candy bar, and that was, it was horrible. It was horrible. Every time I went for testing, yes, you feel so degraded because what do you focus on? The things you don't, didn't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, you focus on the things you did wrong. How many quarters are in $6.25? When I couldn't answer that, even with using my fingers, I went in the car and I cried and I cried and I cried. And the next, the next time I went in, I said to him, 
go ahead, ask me how many quarters are in $6.25 because I've been saying it to myself every single night. Um, and that was an answer I never again forgot because it had such an, except I can't remember it now, but I normally don't forget it. Um, <laughs> it had such an emotional impact on me that I literally cried half the night. I was so upset I couldn't do that. I was the vice president of a bank, and I couldn't tell them how many quarters were in $6.25. Um, the the whole way you feel. And then, okay, let's, let's talk about drawing the digital clock or the analog clock. Mm-hmm. How many people use an analog clock anymore? Of course right. it's becoming foreign to us because our world is digital. When mm-hmm. they tell me to do 10 after 12, I want to write 12 dot dot 10. And the, the testing is, is, first off, it's very antiquated. And secondly, it sets you up for failure. It sets you up to feel like a failure and to leave there. And the next time you come back, what are you thinking of? You're thinking... Oh, my golly, what am I going to mess up on this time? You're not thinking about how good you're going to do. You're not thinking about them finding an answer. You're thinking about all the things you did wrong. Mm-hmm. And with very little compassion from the person giving it most of the time, too. Yeah. Yep. Well, in, in, interesting conversation today. I can't believe our hour is just about up. We've got about uh, not even three minutes left. Um, Danny, are there some others? Is there anything else that you would like to leave our audience with today? Well, one one thing real quickly, Lori. This is one of the reasons that I'm very glad that, that technology is, is uh, giving us some really good uh, diagnostic uh, testing that, that can – can be a, be more accurate and, and actually in the end game more compassionate, you know, with with MRI mm-hmm. and uh, FDD PET and all that. So I think this is one one thing that that, that where technology is going in the right direction here. No, I, I'm really privileged to be on the show. I, I've really enjoyed talking with both of you today. We've hit on some some very important things. You know, the older I get, as I've said, my, my priorities have changed and my way of looking at things has changed. And I want to I want to help people live well with this. I, I want I want us to be able to find cures. They're, they're, don't don't get me wrong. This is so important. But I want us to be able to help people to live better and live well with the diagnosis. We're not going to give up on people. We need to encourage care partners. Uh, we need to bring out the best in, in folks that are living with the condition. And we need to teach young people through intergenerational programming like we've talked about today. Uh, all the things we've said here, so that they can go out and change the world and make things make things better. Let's create a culture of compassion. And my hat's off to you and Lori for everything that you're doing to to help bring this about. Great. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you on our show. And if people want to uh, get a hold of Dr. Potts, you can uh, email him at info at cognitive dynamics. Dot org. That's info at cognitivedynamics.org. And um, Lori, any last comments from you? Just what a privilege it has been. And uh, again, both of you, I just think you're both wonderful. I hope together we can all continue to express to doctors, in particular neurologists, how important it is to have the compassion and to listen to the people you're talking to. Yes. Good. 
Good, good words of wisdom there. That that would be a wonderful. That's our our 2018 um, uh, intention there for us to all come together and and really work work as one collaboratively uh, to um, like Dr. Potts says um, change to a culture of compassion when it comes to dementia. I want to thank everyone for being with us. And again, have a great holiday season, and we will be talking to you in 2018. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye, guys. It was a. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.